Hello everyone, and welcome to the Former Review. Today, we'll be looking at the US release 2020 film, Le Miserables. Now sit back, maybe grab a drink, and let's talk about this movie. What's up everybody, and welcome back to the Formal Review. This is season three, episode 26, and I thank you all for tuning in once again. In this episode, I will be talking about the updates to my movie collection, along with my thoughts on the Hollywood diversity qualification from the Academy, and then the review for the film. So stay tuned. So since the last episode, I was able to find sales for Meet the Parents, Frank and Weenie, and I was able to upgrade my Ocean's 11 12 collection from DVD to Blu-ray. But the biggest upgrade that I was able to do was from a DVD to a 4K rendition of Van Helsing. I really found a great sale, which was the lowest it had ever been since it was released. There obviously is a possibility it could be less on Black Friday, but it wasn't last year, so I bought it anyway because I didn't really want to wait and potentially seeing that it would be less or potentially more than what I saw. So for those who don't remember, Van Helsing is a 2004 period action drama film written and directed by Steven Summers, starring Hugh Jackman as Van Helsing and Kate Beckinsale as Anna Valerius. Thoughts of the movie? I know this movie isn't critically great. It has a 24% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 35% on Metacritic, but I honestly love it. I know it's not good. It's a decent action movie. I love how it has an homage and tribute to the universal horror monster films from the 1930s and 40s. It definitely is special effects overkill. The story I find is decent enough to be fun even though it's silly at times. The reason why I upgraded was because I only had the DVD version of the film and I've been a disc collector ever since I was in high school. And as I mentioned in the last episode, I have over 700 movies. Now with this, it's at 766 movies. Now I am trying to upgrade a lot of them from DVD to Blu-ray at least, or if they have a 4K version, I'm mostly going for that. However, if I do it too much, requires a lot of financial investment. So I don't do that for every movie right away. I honestly only look for deals and sales but I do want to get the best thing and obviously future proofing my collection as much as possible. So since some may ask why I do this when we're in the day of streaming. So here's why. Right now, the gold standard for film is 4K and eventually it will be 8K. I do think that 8K may not be needed for a while as right now there's very little content. However, 4K means the picture was created using at least 8 million pixels, which allows for a denser, sharper image than the old standard of 1080p. And at the end of the day, it does offer more picture than that format. So some may ask, why stay with physical media when Netflix is broadcasting some content in 4K since 2014 and Amazon and Apple now are offering some 4k content as well so in theory these streaming services offer prettier quality that is comparable to the disc quality as well however when the same movie was compared on streaming service versus a blu-ray disc versus a 4k disc av enthusiasts at what HiFi.com found that the 4K streaming experience was actually more in line with watching a traditional 1080p Blu-ray and that Blu-rays had a very clear advantage in terms of contrast and color. However, 4K discs looked far better than either one. They even compared audio quality for streaming services, but they found that they would really get compressed and it was comparable to Dolby Digital Plus. This level of audio is very basic and it's for a six channel surround sound audio system, which includes a front, left and right, a center channel and two surround channels in the back and a subwoofer. So this sound was mandatory on DVDs and is now mandatory to have at least this on Blu-rays. However, most are at a higher level than this. 
So when a film is made, they have audio that really is meant to be experienced in a theater because it's a much bigger sound system. When we watch movies at home, either via streaming or disc, the audio can be experienced or lost either by your television speakers or your streaming service slash your internet. This can reduce the movie watching experience for some, and this is usually prevented by a use of a lossless audio compression format via Dolby or DTS. So this DVD's Dolby Digital is functional but old, as it is a technology that has been around in 1992 in theaters and on television since 1998. More advanced surround sound formats include more discrete sounds on different channels. The results are essentially a clear dialogue and improved imaging, spaciousness, and overall realism. The two most popular high-end audio systems like I mentioned are DTS and Dolby Digital. And this kind of is a battle between them going back and forth. Some people out there argue that DTS is capable of delivering better sound quality than Dolby. Their reasoning is because DTS has a higher encoding data rate than the corresponding Dolby formats and some say that Dolby Digital is more advanced and so is its sound quality and from what I read their defense is that Dolby maintains that their codec is more efficient and thus can operate at a lower bitrate. For me personally I have found they're pretty much interchangeable. DTS Digital Surround is comparable to Dolby Digital, DTS HD Master Audio is comparable to Dolby True HD and DTS X is comparable to Dolby Atmos. My point in bringing all this up is that they found when they looked at a streaming movie, it gives you compressed audio on an old technology. And when you compare that to an uncompressed Dolby True HD slash DTS HD Master Audio you get on Blu-rays, it's wild to me to think that people would prefer the worse off version. They also found that the audio quality between standard Blu-ray and 4K Blu-ray is hard to differentiate if it's a Dolby Atmos to comparably to another Dolby Atmos, for example. What Dolby Atmos and DTSX do is make your surround taller and honestly more immersive, which Netflix is confident that they won't be adding anytime soon. There are a few Atmos compatible Blu-rays out there, but it is standard on most if not all ultra hd blu-rays and if you don't have a system to support this the disc will default to dolby true hd 7.1 which is also superior to what streaming services provide the problem with streaming is that the files need to be compressed in a way so that it can be sent officially over the internet. Furthermore, the content has to be there. To get 4K, you have to pay Netflix for their premium subscription. Even if you pay for it, then your internet has to be able to handle it. Netflix and Disney Plus say that you need at least 25 megabits per second to stream Ultra HD content and Amazon needs at least 15. As per this recording, the two cheap Deepest high-speed internets for most bandwidth in the US are Verizon and Comcast at $40 and $35 per month respectively. This will get you download speeds of 100 megabytes per second for Comcast and 200 megabytes per second for Verizon. However, what most people don't know is that the speed that you are supposed to be getting is only if you're hooked up directly to the router via an ethernet cable and that Wi-Fi is about 70% as fast at maximum. While I won't get into the specifics of how this goes, because it is a lot of information, it is dependent on what type of router you have, plus how many other devices you have on your Wi-Fi. 
Then it depends on the location of your router and in your home. And if it's right next to it, obviously you're gonna get higher speeds. If it's two floors down, it's gonna get slower speeds. So my Wi-Fi ranges from about 100 to about 23. And it really depends on how I'm going. So my main area where I stream Netflix is about two floors down and I get about 20 or so megabytes per second when I'm down there. But here's also the thing is that I have so many different devices on my Wi-Fi that that slows it down. And unfortunately that speed isn't enough for a Netflix 4K movie, even if I decided to pay for it. Unless I turned off all devices that were on my Wi-Fi, and then maybe I could get it. Otherwise, the only one that I could get 4K content is on Amazon and not Netflix or Disney+. Plus. I will say sometimes my Wi-Fi is around 50 megabytes per second, and sometimes it is more. But it has to be that speed for the entire movie, otherwise it will switch back to 1080p. Okay then, let's say you're not a Windows user like I am and you're more into Apple products. While buying movies on iTunes will get you 4K and Dolby Atmos, there's a lot of trust there. There have been cases in the past where Apple did not give the promised content. And even if they give you the correct content, how do you get it to play on your screen? If you only have iTunes and not other Apple products, one option would be to hook up an HDMI cable from a laptop which feels honestly like a lot of extra work anyway. The other option is to use your internet via server. However, that requires a lot of understanding. Then your internet must be able to handle the sending of their content wirelessly, as I already mentioned. Then the Apple TV is the other option, but then that requires you to purchase that device on top of everything, which is $180 or $200, depending on the amount of space you get. Then on top of that, if you purchase a movie to be stored in the cloud, you have to take the time to download that movie. And even if you have decent internet, it won't be as fast as putting in a disc and also apple tv is only recommended if you already have invested heavily into the apple ecosystem with phones tablets itunes apple music etc if you're not then you might want to check out amazon fire tv or roku streaming services which can provide the same basic features but at much lower price points however again those are still dependent on your internet speeds even if your streaming devices are up to speed, plus your internet is fine, there will still be some information lost along the way. Even with technology improving, it is inevitable. On the other hand, are right in the room with you, sent to your television on high quality cable, and thus doesn't suffer from the same issues. That's not to say streaming devices aren't useful and have some real advantages. And obviously terms and price, selection size, and obviously ease of use, they are really hard to beat. However, ultimately the streaming service is more like channel surfing. You really get to choose whatever's on from a selection determined by somebody else. With physical media that you own, you get to watch what you want from a selection determined by you. Streaming may be cheaper and more convenient, but physical media has a little bit more of a premium effect. I say all this to explain why I'm upgrading to 4K. I'm future prepping as much as I can, like I said, and I know 8K is out there somewhere, but I'm hesitant to say that one, it will actually reach our homes, and then all the issues that I just described with 4K reaching our homes, 8K is just going to exponentially increase those issues. So to future prep, I actually, like I said, I keep my eye for sales for upgrades. However, I choose my upgrades very carefully with a few guidelines. My first one is some Blu-rays like Aquaman do have Dolby Atmos while a and while a 4K picture would be better than a 1080p, for me, an upscale from 1080p to 4K still looks really good. And for me, it's not good enough to spend more money on an upgrade. The second thing is based on the audio. If I'm going to upgrade, it must have Dolby Atmos or DTSX 
at least until maybe Black Friday. Also, a lot of the 4K depends on how the movie is made. It could be filmed in 4K or filmed in 2K, then upscaled to 4K. 2K is basically a 4K divided in half with dimensions of 2560 by 1440 pixels versus 1920 by 1080 pixels for 1080p. So technically, 1080p is a downgrade from the original filming process. So think of the compression that has to happen when a film was filmed in 4K and downgraded to 1080p. For example, Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy was filmed in 4K, but it doesn't have Dolby Atmos or DTSX. It only has Dolby True HD, which the Blu-ray has. Batman's will fix the compression from 4K to 1080p, however, the audio doesn't really change very much. So the upscale that I get is fine, and I don't feel like spending a lot of money on that. Black Friday may change that though, but I have to keep these guidelines in place, like I said, or my wallet will hate me. Anyway, so back to the upgrade. Van Helsing was upscaled from a 2K master, but what most people have been raving about is the addition of HDR, which really makes the colors pop, and then also, like I mentioned, the DTSX audio. My prior version of the film on DVD was a full screen, yes, like a square, and only had Dolby Digital 5.1, so I thought that the upgrade was necessary. So these audio formats require a system for you to handle it, and it is something that you have to invest in, maybe not all at once, but over time. However, I've spent too much time talking about these types of things. I can cover that on another episode. So the news that we received last Tuesday from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is that anointed best picture films will have to meet a new inclusion and diversity standard starting in 2024. This is the second thing that the Academy has done this year. So they invited artists and executives to join with a major emphasis on women and minorities. Some people that were invited were Cynthia Erivo, Aquafina, Olivia Wilde, Zendaya, and Constance Wu. So this new class includes about 45% women, 36% underrepresented ethnic communities, and 49% from international from 68 countries. These are the percentages of people they invited, not the people in the academy. So I don't know how many people of them were invited as a whole, but these percentages don't mean too much to me. It's like saying I invited 10 people and four out of them were women, four out of them were underrepresented companies, and five out of them were international. Since these numbers can overlap, it's not really a great number without knowing more. There was a Washington Post analysis that showed in 2015, 22% of film executives in the Academy were women and about 4% were people from underrepresented ethnic populations. They also showed that the Academy had about 11% women directors and 16% of directors were from underrepresented populations. They said that their numbers doubled since 2016 and that is only good if all the other numbers stay the same. For example, you can double the amount of women in an organization, but if you also double the amount of men at the same time, nothing changes. The percentage stays the same. So without knowing all the information these numbers on honestly mean very little to me. I do think it is good that they're inviting people from these populations that they indicated, and I hope that it actually is making the overall Academy population more diverse. So back to these standards. So they were placed in order to, and I quote, encourage equitable representation on and off screen in order to better reflect the diversity of the movie going audience. So in 2024, films vying for Best Picture must meet two out of four standards to be deemed eligible. Then later on, Best Picture nominees must only meet one out of the four standards. So these four standards dig into how films come to be, from the stories that they tell, to the executives who lead, market them, while addressing gender, sexual orientation, ethnicity, and disability. 
Standard A requires a film to have at least one of the lead actors or significant supporting actors to be from an underrepresented ethnic group or have at least 30% of all actors in secondary or minor roles from underrepresented groups, which include women, or have a main storyline theme or narrative centered around an underrepresented group. But not all films submitted for Best Picture have to have those things. Standard B is focused on diversifying creative leadership and crew roles. Standard C is more on industry and how they have to provide paid internship and apprenticeship for people in underrepresented groups and training opportunities and so on standard d requires more of marketing publicity and distribution to have multiple in-house senior executives from underrepresented groups so best picture nominees must only have two of these standards and to me this doesn't seem difficult to use a most recent theater release tenet will qualify because john david washington is the main star and it was produced by emma thomas and it was edited by jennifer lame plus only one of the two latter people will be needed to qualify I don't think this is a bad thing and I'm not advocating for people who aren't qualified to get the job because of their ethnicity, gender, disability, etc. It should go to whomever is the most qualified. However, these populations aren't looked at in an easy way for that to be done. To use my most recent review of Mulan, one of the biggest issues that I had with it was that it was a completely whitewashed behind the camera. As I said before, I don't think it is a bad thing that the film had a woman director, but they could have gotten a Chinese director or a Chinese costume designer. There are plenty out there and we know they're qualified. If we look at this film, director Nikki Carl's career she has six films prior to this whale rider north country a heavenly vintage mcfarland usa and the zookeeper's wife i actually did a little bit of research of how could this could be done and looked into some of the directors that could have done it better i want to say that this is no guarantee that they would have done better also would have to agree to do it but my point is to show that they are qualified in comparison to card and it's nothing against her she's qualified and i like her direction on the film i only feel that if they had gotten an asian director or even writer certain things like historical accuracy wouldn't have been messed up. However, just for simplicity, I just want to focus on director. So I looked up people who have done an equal or more films than her that are either East or Southeast Asian. While I think a South Asian person could do this well as well, I personally wanted to see how many specifically East or Southeast Asian I could find. So here's how I found after some minimal research, and this is not an inclusive list as I'm sure there are plenty more that I could not find. John M. Chu, who is Taiwanese and Chinese American. His films are Now You See Me Too, Crazy Rich Asians, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Step Up to the Street, Step Up 3D, and then two Justin Bieber movies. Another director is Justin Lee, who is Taiwanese American, who is known for Shopping for Fangs, Better Luck Tomorrow, Annapolis, The Fast and the Furious, Tokyo Drift, Finishing the Game, Fast and Furious, Fast Five, Fast and Furious Six, Hollywood Adventures, and Star Trek Beyond. Another director is Ang Lee, who is Chinese, and his films are Pushing Hands, Wedding Banquet, Eat, Drink Man, Woman, Sense and Sensibility, The Ice Storm, Ride with the Devil, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Hulk, Brokeback Mountain, Lust, Caution, Taking, Woodstock, Life of Pi, Billy Lynn's Long, Halftime Walk, and Gemini Man. Another director is Zhang Yimou, who is also Chinese, who directed Red Sorghum, Codename Cougar, Raised the Red Lantern, The Story of Chi Ju, To Live, Shanghai, Triad, Keep Cool, No One Less, The Road, Home, Happy Times, Hero, House of Flying Daggers, Riding Alone for a Thousand of Miles, Curse of the Golden Flower, A Woman, A Gun, and a Noodle Shop, Under the Hawthorn Tree, The Flowers of War, Coming Home, The Great Wall, and Shadow. Another one is James Wan, who is Malaysian-Australian, who has directed Saw, Dead Silence, Death Sentence, Insidious, The Conjuring, Insidious Chapter 2, Furious 7, and Aquaman. 
The Last Director is last year's Best Picture Director and Screenplay winner Bong Joon-ho, and his films are Barking Dogs Never Bite, Memories of Murder, The Host, Mother, Snowpiercer, Okja, and obviously Parasite. Okay, so were they more successful or as successful with their films as Caro? So I took their average score for each of their movies from Metacritic or IMDb if Metacritic was available, and then I got the average score for each director. Caro was about 66, Chu was 50, Lin was 60, Lee was 70, Yumo was 70, Wan was 51, and Junho was about 81. Okay, so what? So I ran a statistical t-test on the scores of the individual movies. For those who don't have a statistical background, simply put, these tests are done to see if an average score can be compared to the other ones and see if there's a significant difference. So what I did was I ran it to see if the average score was significantly different from Caro's. Specifically did the two sample t-tests assuming unequal variances. Doing this, I got a p-value of less than 0.05 for Chu and Wan, which makes sense because their scores are much lower than Kaoru's, and I got a low p-value for Junho as a comparison. In this case, a low p-value of less than 0.05 shows that there is a significant difference between the two averages. However, the other three of Yumo, Lin, Lee, had p-values greater than 0.05, which shows that their averages scores were not significantly different. So according to this analysis, essentially, aside from Chu and Wan, all the other directors have been either as successful or more successful than Caro. And two of them have done Wuxia martial arts films before, and honestly, they could have done this again. Again, this is on the assumption that they would do Disney a favor and that they weren't asked before this. However, even if they were, this analysis shows that there's no significant difference between three of the directors. This is obviously a very simple model and doesn't take into account any other directors that are out there. However, if anything, it can be said that there are qualified directors by just my small analysis. I am sure that there's someone out there who is Asian that could have helped out in another production way, even if the director spot was closed. Again, this is no shade to Caro, as I did enjoy her direction even if it was a little whitewashed. Even so, this film could be nominated for Best Picture based on these new qualifications, though it wouldn't be nominated for Best Picture. On top of all this, these ideas of a diversity in film has been pretty much in place since 2014. Still a little weird though that it took that long. The British Film Institute had diversity standards for films to secure financing for the BFI Film Fund since 2014. Then in 2018, the BAFTA Awards adapted these ideas and they are similar to what the Academy is doing. So pretty much the past six years, the diversity standards have been placed for these films to win awards. The Academy is now only joining the fund and these standards are pretty much identical. There's some differences, sure, but not a lot. So I don't really see the big deal about this. You really only have to make two of these four standards initially and then one. That means eventually you can have an all-white male cast on a fictional planet where no women or underrepresented populations exist as long as there is a woman or underrepresented person writing, editing, or producing the movie though it is fairly unlikely that would happen. It's really not a big deal. I think stop really fussing. I think it's a legal demonstration of companies showing that they are trying to be diverse. We'll see how it plays out. Anyway, sorry to go on those rants. So back to the movie at hand. So let's relax, grab your drinks, and let's discuss the movie. So before I get started on the film, I also want to say there are some French names in this film, and if I mispronounce them, I do apologize, but I will do my best to pronounce them correctly. As always, there is a slight spoiler warning, but I will always do my best to not ruin the movie for you. So as I always say, I suggest that you go watch the film before you hear what I have to say about it so you fully understand everything. But if you do not care about potential spoilers, keep listening.
Soleil Le Miserable is actually a 2019 French drama film directed by Ludge Lee in his full-length feature directorial debut from a screenplay by Lee Giordano Giordelli, Alexis Manutetti, and it's based on Lee's 2017 short film of the same name. Meninetti stars alongside Damien Mouna, Jibril Zunga, Isa Persia, Al Hassan Lee, Steve Tonchu, Almani Kanute, and Niza Ben Fatima. So some may ask, why did I want to watch this movie? Because I haven't watched too many streaming movies and this movie is on Amazon Prime because that's where they released it. So I was watching the 2012 Les Miserables the other day and because I was a big fan of the original musical and the novel, I've seen the stage performance many, many times and honestly, somewhere in the double digits. Now, first, that movie cannot hold a candlestick to the stage performance and overall the singing is just better and honestly it's one of the best stage musicals ever made. So quick history lesson, Les Miserables is a French historical novel by Victor Hugo first published in 1862 and it is considered one of the greatest novels of the 19th century. It follows the struggles of an ex-convict Jean Valjean and his experience of redemption during the Paris uprising of 1832. Shortly after the death of Jean-Maxime Lamarck, a popular former army commander who was critical of the monarchy died, people rebelled in his memory. It was 3,000 versus 30,000. The government portrayed the rebels as an extremist minority and it was revealed that the rebels actually were 66% working class and a high proportion of them being construction workers and the other 34% were either shopkeepers or clerks. So essentially just everyday people fighting for what they believed in. Later on, because of what happened, the regime was finally overthrown in the French Revolution of 1848. So young Victor Hugo was actually in Paris when this happened and he heard the sound of gunfire and went to them. He ended up surrounded by barricades and ended up finding shelter between some columns in the street where all shops were absolutely shattered. For a quarter of an hour, bullets flew by his head. So then fast forward 30 years to 1862 when his novel was published and it shows periods leading up to the rebellion and as honestly an outspoken activist he did favor the revolutionaries however he doesn't show the regime as a bad entity and honestly sympathizes with it. And his novel looks at law, religion, politics, moral philosophy, anti-monarchism, justice, and love. This story obviously has been adapted for film, television, and stage, including musicals. From a film perspective, there actually was a non-musical 1998 film starring Liam Neeson, Jeffrey Rush, Uma Thurman, and Claire Danes. And I think it's actually pretty good, but the most famous versions are the musical versions both on stage and the film adaptation. So the original French musical premiered in Paris in 1980 with direction by Robert Hussein. Its English language adaptation by producer Cameron McIntosh has been running in London since October of 1985, making it the longest running musical in the West End and the second longest running musical in the world after original off-Broadway run of the Fantastics. Today, it is regarded by many, including myself, as one of the greatest musicals ever made and it has won many awards as such. Seeing the show as many times as I have has really been a privilege that I would suggest everyone do if you have a chance. Like I said earlier, the film doesn't hold candlesticks to the stage version. As a kid, I listened to the original soundtrack so many times that I probably killed a few CDs. The 2012 film adaptation was directed by Tom Hooper and stars an ensemble cast led by Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe, Anne Hathaway, Eddie Redmayne, Amanda Seyfried, Helena Barnum Carter, and Sasha Baron Cohen. The film I think is very well made and has some great performances especially by Jackman and Hathaway. I don't think Crowe is bad at the role though the singing isn't great. I don't think it's awful. The sound in the songs are great particularly by Hathaway and 
and Samantha Barker who played Epony. My favorite bits are the parts that are rooted in musical theater. Jackman as Jean Valjean is good, but my favorite bit of the movie is when the priest hands in the silver candlesticks. Not only is this a big moment for the character, but because of who is handing it to him. The priest is played by Colm Wilkinson, who was the original English version of the character. So to me, it's almost a passing of the torch. And there are also some little great things such as other musical actors making appearances, such as Carrie Ellis. I also read the novel in high school and I think it's great. So I say all this to say, yeah, I like this story. <laughs> so why did I watch this new film? Because prior to watching the 2012 version last weekend, I didn't really know much about it. After watching the 2012 version, I wondered if there could be a more modern version of the story with Jean Valjean being a person of color and placed in America today. I say this because as of 2016, 2.3 million people were incarcerated in the United States at a rate of 698 people per 100,000. In 2008, the US had about 24.7% of the world's 9.8 million prisoners. Currently, over 6 million Americans are disenfranchised for being convicts of any ethnicity. Additionally, they're ineligible for welfare in most states and they cannot be eligible for subsidized housing. And for Section 8, they have to wait two years before they can apply. In addition to finding housing, they also have to find employment. And this can be difficult as employers often check for potential employees, criminal records, and essentially a person who has been recently released from prison comes back into society that is not prepared structurally or emotionally to welcome them back. And this is what is shown at the beginning of the story. So why a person of color? So according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, it is projected that one out of every three black boys and one out of six Latino boys will go to jail or prison. Black men are nearly six times more likely to be incarcerated than white men and Latino men are nearly three times as likely. Native Americans are incarcerated at more than twice the rate of white Americans. Additionally, according to the University of Michigan Law School, innocent black people are about seven times more likely to be convicted of murder than innocent white people, and black people are, who are convicted of murder are 50% more likely to be innocent than non-black people convicted of murder. Some view that these numbers are represented by cities such as the District of Columbia, which have been generally supported to be tough on crime, and there appears to be a connection between drugs and violent crimes, and that class is a factor of incarceration. They state that black people with advanced degrees have fewer convictions, and black people without an advanced education have more. And I think there's a few problems with this arguments. The first part regarding crime in cities. So FBI arrest data shows that there are higher arrests slash stop rates among blacks than whites across the country and there has even been studies that show disproportionate contact with minority offenders in communities that can lead to higher negative bias toward the same minority group members. This will then push the police to be more punishing on the same communities. To the second point of drug and violent crimes, according to the Department of Justice, drugs are related to crime in multiple ways. The most obvious is the crime to use, possess, and manufacture or distribute drugs classified on having a potential for abuse. The second is how the drugs affect on the user's behavior and as such generating violence and other illegal activity in connection with drug trafficking. So the long war on drugs has hurt black communities. How Ever, there has been a lot more attention toward the heroin and painkiller use and overdose among whites, particularly in those in suburbs in recent years. The response to the current opioid epidemic is very opposite to the crack epidemic that hit black communities hard in the 1990s. That response was a lot more aggressive than the more compassionate response for offenders that we have now. And this brings into the idea of racially biased motivations and as such their implications. So there was a study done at Yale and American University that looked at the differences between blacks and 
nationwide in crimes that they are charged with drug use profiles and the services they access. They found that relative to whites, blacks were at an economic disadvantage as demonstrated by their lower income and education levels. They found that blacks were more likely to be charged with possession and sales while whites were more likely to be charged for illegal activity related to drug use such as stealing to support their drug habit. Yet, both reported the same degree of drug sales. The last thing they found was that blacks reported preferring marijuana to harder drugs and having less serious drug problems. However, both populations reported using drugs in the 30 days prior to their most recent run-in with the law. They did say that their study was slightly limited due to the sample size and it is reasonable to suggest that the involvement of blacks in the drug trade may be at least partly a response to their poverty and the lack of employment opportunities. As such, they said that investment in quality inner city education, youth programming, and effective job generation, training, and placement should be an important part of efforts to deal with crime prevention. Either way though, their study showed a difference between how blacks and whites are treated within the criminal justice system in all points of involvement. Their data shows that as long as the disparities remain, there will be a disproportionate amount of negative consequences for blacks in comparison to whites. Now, while the last statement about education may be true, education comes at a cost. The average cost of a college degree per year is about $41,426. At private colleges, $11,260 for state residents at public colleges and $27,120 for out-of-state students at state schools. Then, if you want to further your education, it will continue costing money, much of which a lot of people do not have, no matter the ethnicity. In 2020, in the United States, the poverty threshold for a single person under the age of 65 was an annual income of $12,760. The threshold for a family of four, including two children, was $26,220. And this unfortunately hits people of color more than other ethnicities. As of 2019, the current U.S. population that was living under the poverty line was about 39 million. According to 2018 census data, about 74% of the people below the poverty line are people of color and the rest are white or multiracial. This means that about 29 million of them are people of color. As of last year, about 131 million people of color are living in the United States. So that means about 22% of all people of color are impoverished, whereas whites had 4 million impoverished of their about 197 million population. So that's about 2%. Due to their financial status, these communities are less likely to get an education and many other privileges that come with it, such as a lower chance of being convicted of a crime. In short though, data shows that drugs, crimes, and poverty are looked at differently when one compares people of color and their white counterparts. My point in bringing this up is not only to bring awareness to these disparities between people of color and whites in these issues, but also show how Jean Valjean's story is very similar to now. Then you add in how the country as a whole right now, plus other places internationally, are standing up for what they believe in against a police force slash the government slash the system that has been proven by research to be disproportional to all disenfranchised people populations. I think that there's a lot of applicability to the Le Miserables story and when I mentioned this to my fiance she suggested that I look to see if there has been an essay or some type of research that has been done on this and that's where I came across this film. So like I said already this film was released in 2019 in France and it was their nomination for best foreign picture at the Academy Awards early this year. Honestly I remember seeing it in this category but I honestly forgot about it. So the film is set in the commune of Montfermeil in the aftermath of the 2018 FIFA
FIFA World Cup. It is also based on real-life occurrences of police violence which took place in the city on October 14, 2008. It follows several characters within the commune as the theft from a teenager spirals into the threat of a larger crisis. The film then depicts abuses against poor citizens, especially teenagers of the sub-Saharan African or Maghrebi ethnicities, thus stressing the community and the fate of the poor in Montfermeil, where the original novel took place. So this film was released in the United States earlier this year on January 10, 2020, and this mostly mesmerizing street thriller shares very little plot-wise with the original story, and it doesn't have any songs, obviously. However, it does take the story message and applies it to a new and diverse generation of people that are equally fueled by inequality and unrest in France. Honestly, it is a very exciting cops versus rebels story that feels very applicable to any major city in the world. The film follows rookie cop Stefan, played by Bonat, joins an anti-crime squad who police the projects. He is joined by the very racist and alpha male Chris, played by Minetti, and Gwanda, played by Zonga. Due to the film having a trio separates it from a typical crime cop duo film or buddy cop film. The audience learns that there is a relationship between the police, the lord of the area, and rival sections, the Muslim Brotherhood, Romani circus workers, and gangs of disenfranchised kids. So as the riots start to happen, the film becomes more violent and deals with a lot of themes similar to those going on in the United States currently. This film has many similarities to other films in the genre, but again, it is applicable to any major city in the world, which is what sets it apart. The story also has some similarities to Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing with its condensed timeline, a multi-character story, and an inciting event of police violence followed by justifiable outrage. Lee gives a view of a community all while using a documentary style, which I think makes the film feel more realistic. And it's honestly absolutely thrilling. And cinematographer Julien Poupa and Lee give the audience some great action sequences. They're able to also use a drone in such a way to really enhance the film's action. And I think there's also some similarity and inspiration from the HBO series The Wire, Training Day, and in a way of depicting portions of society and how those areas work against each other to only hurt the children, which then allows the cycle to repeat itself. So at one point in the movie, the audience is shown the children happily playing pickup football games, but they have to live in buildings that are falling to the ground. Then the film contrasts that with the cops who return to their safe and secure homes and life is obviously better. One officer's biggest problem is having his daughters fight over a Barbie doll. And you contrast to the main kid of the story, Issa, a 12 year old who is living on the streets and spending his nights in a pile of trash. He may be the child that commits a small crime, but at the end of the day, he's a lonely child who has no hope. But he atones for this small crime by returning the item that he stole. And I think that Lee is able to contrast that extremely effectively with the police officers who spend the majority of the film trying to hide the fact that they shot the kid in the first place. As the film is shown from the point of view of the cops, I do feel that there is not much time given to the disenfranchised characters, but I do think that one can still feel for them. Lee is able to capture the essence of those who live in these areas, even if the characters are a little underdeveloped. Though not exactly what I was expecting when I started the movie, I was not disappointed at all. I think the themes of the original story are there, but in a more modern way. As I mentioned at the beginning, this story is based on real life events and really, again, could be applied to any city in the world.
there's a quote at the end of the movie which is from victor hugo's novel that's shown that says there's no such thing as bad plants or bad men there's only bad cultivators i think this really does apply to honestly both situations and i think really the action is great and i think the story is absolutely thrilling especially in the final scene the meaning behind it is powerful and again very timely it is now streaming on amazon prime and i suggest that everyone check it out so what did you think of the movie and what is your favorite musical either on screen and or on stage? Let me know. Hit me up on social media. Former reviews on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where I post many different things, including trailer react. And the URL is all the same. It's at the former review for each one. Feel free to check out BackseatDirectors.com where I work with a big team of writers working on reviews and also editorials and much, much more. Again, that's BackseatDirectors.com. Please also subscribe to the podcast on your favorite service. It is on Spotify, Google, and Apple podcast podbean and really honestly anywhere you can find podcasts also i'm always wanting to grow and improve so feel free to leave a review on your favorite service i see the numbers and i do this for you all and i want to keep it entertaining i really appreciate everyone supporting me by listening and talking about movies with me online for those who have contributed financially i really thank you for supporting me in that way for those who want to financially contribute please go to anchor.fm forward slash the minus sign formal minus sign review and click support this podcast and I thank you very much in advance and any donation is appreciated. Thank you all for tuning in once again and until next time, stay safe, wash your hands, wear your mask, and I'll see you at the movies. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Former Review. Cheers, and we'll see you next time.